Uh, good morning. We're going to continue with Matthew chapter 10, starting from verse 20 and hopefully get through to, to the end of the chapter. Let's start with, uh, with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come again to you seeking, Father, for open eyes, that we might behold wonderful things out of your word, and that you will give us the strength that we seek to be like him, him who is he who is the, the center of our dreams and our hopes and the one consciously and subconsciously upon whom we as your children are focused, that is upon your dear son. And we pray that as we try to take apart his teaching here and understand it, that you will guide us, that you will help that word to live for us, and that it might therefore live in us in the time that remains to us until he returns. We pray, Lord Jesus, that your spirit will be in us, and that we might know you and make you known in our own lives and in our witness. For, you, for your sake. Amen. Okay, so Matthew 20. We, we said last time that uh, this is really uh, the Lord's commission to his, his men to go out and, and preach the gospel. And he warns them in verse 21 that there's going to be persecution. Uh, see in verse 19, let's start there, when they deliver you up. He doesn't say, if they deliver you up. He assumes, as in the parable of the sower, that persecution and opposition is going to be an absolutely definite, de absolutely certain part of our experience as believers. That is going to happen. And no one actually flies under the radar. No one actually gets away with it. You know, gets baptized as a teenager in a believing family, meets someone else who's from the same background, has a great marriage, has their kids grow up in the same community, and dies in an old folks' home surrounded by friends and relatives, etc. Um, and, you know, got away with a pretty cool life. That doesn't happen. If we are really going to be of Christ, and if we are going to be Him in this world, then for sure there must be opposition. It is not a case of if persecution arises, it's when it arises. <clears throat> and so he, he says here that the brother shall deliver up the brother to death. And looking at uh, deliver up, this is the very same term used repeatedly about the Lord's delivering up to death. If you want the references, Matthew twenty six fifty nine, Matthew 27 verse 1, Mark 14.55, and Peter uses the same term about the delivering up of Jesus to death, First Peter 3.18. So then what he's saying is, in the same way as I suffered and was delivered up to death, so you will also be. But this is how it has to be, that actually it, it cannot be any other way if we are in Christ. And that's what we signed up to when we were baptized, when we were buried with him, so that his death, as Paul says in Romans 6, becomes our death, and his resurrection becomes ours. Now, in first century Judaism, the idea that families were divided and could be divided, this is what they said about the Gentiles, that the Gentiles terrible lot, their families are divided, etc. And yet the Lord is saying, that, look, this is going to happen. You are going to do this as the Jewish leadership. You're going to do this to those families who have people in them who believe in me. And you shall be hated of all, verse 22, for my sake. Now, again, this was Judaism's understanding of Israel's experience in the Gentile world, that we shall be hated by all men. This is right out of, uh, of all sorts of Jewish writings that use this very same term, hated of all. And yet the Lord is saying, that's what's going to happen to my people, to the believers. This is the new Israel that I am developing and the equivalent of the Gentile world are none less than the Jewish leadership. Now, it's a radical inversion. When we read later on uh, in more symbolic, metaphorical language that the Lord Jesus established the new heavens and earth, uh, replacing the mosaic heavens and earth, yes, this is how uh, radical it was. But he that endures to the end shall be saved. Now, here straight away we, we come up to, uh, I guess, something we have to face, that the language that is used here about this preaching commission 
given to the disciples in the ministry of Jesus and the persecution that he expected that they were going to receive. This is all very similar language to what you later read in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Prophecy when the Lord says that all this sort of thing is going to happen in the last days, that is our last days, to those who preach him. How, how are we to understand this huge similarity of language? Well, I think my preferred explanation would be that there were various possibilities for the, the date of the coming of Christ. I believe there is no calendar date uh, set. Instead, there are conditions. If Israel had responded, as of course the Lord wanted them to, then things would have been so much different. And so I think that his idea was that this is a possibility for you now, as you go out and preach the gospel, that you will go all over the cities of Israel, take the message, and then the end shall come. And what you've got to do, guys, is endure to that end. But that didn't happen, because Israel did not respond. And maybe the disciples were not as zealous as they should have been, not as persuasive as they might have been. And on the other hand, Israel's hearts were hard. And so, therefore, the whole thing was shifted back. It's not that God's purpose fails, it is that he can redefine and realign that purpose and reinterpret uh, his own prophetic word. There's plenty of examples of this. In 40 days, Nineveh shall be destroyed. Well, it was not, because they repented. And yet, when you read Nahum, uh, who prophesies against Nineveh, it's quite clear that in the end, Nineveh did have its comeuppance, and the essence of God's concern and anger with, with Nineveh actually came true in the end. It just uh, had a chronological delay. And you see this all, all the way through God's dealings with people. So when we read about, he that endures to the end shall be saved, well, I think <clears throat> that has now got a different meaning. It does seem to, to be that in the final tribulation, in the final period, maybe three and a half years of tribulation, which there will be before the Lord's coming, that the situation is going to be very, very difficult for us as believers. And yet, at that same time, we will be preaching. And if you look at my book, The Last Days, I've gone into this in some detail, the biblical evidence for this. And the idea is that if you endure to the end, then you will be saved. Now, he talks in verse 23 about <clears throat> when the Son of Man comes. So the end, ultimately, is the coming of the Son of Man. But what about all those people who down the years have not lived in the last days and have read these words and have sincerely tried to interpret them? Well, yes, in a sense, the end can also be the end of our own lives or the end of a certain period of trial and testing which God gives us, because that's how it worked out for the disciples. He sent them out on this preaching mission, and he says, endure to the end. Well, the end for them was the end of that particular commission, that particular period in their lives. James 5.11, you have heard of the patience or the endurance, again, hupomone, as here uh, of Job, and you have seen the end of the Lord. And I think the end there, the end of the Lord, means that the Lord gave Job a period of trial. <clears throat> and when that period ended, then he was justified. It doesn't mean he died when it ended. And so I think the same is here. Endurance to the end in this context was a period that God gave them. And you see, our lives are absolutely in his control. There's a period of life, maybe when you lived in a certain place, when you worked in a certain company, when your kids were young, or whatever it was, when you were still living in your parents' home, this was a period. <clears throat> and God had certain intentions for you during that period, and then it ended. And okay, and then he starts another program with you. 23. When they persecute you in this city, then flee to another. Again, when they persecute you, not if they persecute you. Persecution is absolutely something that we sign up to when we sign up to the Lord Jesus, because you only have to look at his life of opposition that he experienced, etc., uh, and to realize that that is a fundamental part of his experience. And in identification with him, by becoming believers in Christ, then all that is true of him we expect in our lives. 
Now, <clears throat> again, this word for persecute, it's something that, it's a word that occurs at least four times in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5. Uh, all the occurrences are in Matthew 5. Uh, again, this is something which the Lord expected for us. He tells them to flee that persecution. And fleeing persecution was a characteristic of the, the persecuted prophets and, and the righteous. Hebrews 11 uh, talks about that, 34, how the Old Testament heroes of faith <coughs> fled the edge of the sword. It's the same word that's used. So again, the Lord is identifying his very secular, not very religious followers with the prophets and the, the righteous men of Judaism. And those secular men who were his disciples had grown up with the idea that somehow these great heroes of faith are, as it were, set in stained glass windows. Not that they had stained glass windows in Judaism, but you know what I'm saying. That these people were lifted up high above the rest of us, and we are to kind of uh, admire these people from afar. And the Lord is saying, no, you are no less than them. You are taking the place of the persecuted prophets. Just as they fled persecution, you do the same. <clears throat> now, he says that you will not have gone over, 23, <clears throat> the cities of Israel until the Son of Man has come. The implication could be that when they had gone over the cities of Israel, then the Son of Man would come. And again, this ties into uh, uh, a, thing that, a theme that I think you have in, in Scripture, that when the gospel has been taken to Israel, <clears throat> then the Lord will come. So it, it really does depend to some degree on Israel's repentance and upon our efforts for them. When the fruit is on the fig tree, that is the clearest one, uh, and spiritual fruit on the fig tree is always talking about uh, spiritual response, spiritual fruit in Israel, uh, spiritually, uh, then that generation will see the Lord's coming. Now he says that you will not have gone over the cities of Israel, and that's the Greek word teleo, the noun of which the Lord has just used in verse 22, uh, the end. He that endures to the end, uh, to the going over. So again, the end would appear to be, in this case, uh, for the disciples, that specific period of time that the Lord had given them to go over Israel in their preaching. And as I say, all this language is uh, repeated in the Olivet Prophecy, specifically about the last days of AD 70 and our last days. So it does seem to me that witnessing to Israel, going over the cities of Israel, uh, is connected with the end which is when the Son of Man comes. Having told them that they were not to, uh, not to be martyrs, they were not to uh, willingly give themselves to death, but they were to flee persecution, he says in verse 24, the disciple is not above his master. <clears throat> now, the idea of being uh, martyrs, of martyrdom, this is very common in, in first century thinking. And the Lord is saying, no, it's not about one great, dramatic, one-off act of martyrdom. That, in a sense, I think he's saying, is for me. I am the one who is going to die, not you. I am going to die in Jerusalem, but you are to focus on being as me. Not in the sense of dying, because he's saying you're not above me. You, you, you can't do that. You're not instead of me, you're not in place of me. Hooper is the, uh, the, the Greek term there, this, this is my job. Your job is to focus on being as me. And, of course, that, that is uh, what is so hard. Give me any day some dramatic act to perform. That may be very difficult, but i just got to you know, take a deep breath and, and steel myself and do it, rather than be as him. And I think that's what his idea is. I am going to die in this city, verse 23, but when they persecute you in this city, then you run away. And focus on being as me. 
It's enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. So then, they were to be his family. Uh, Not just uh, disciples, but actual uh, family, not just his servants. Because he goes on, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more should they call them of his household? So then, Beelzebub can mean a number of things. One of the things it can mean is lord of the house. So the Lord is saying that you are... You are my household. You are my family, my servants, my disciples. All these metaphors he's uh, using about them. And he's saying, so therefore, whatever happens to me shall for sure be happening to you. So you will experience what I'm experiencing. uh, Persecution, etc., delivering up just as I was delivered up or will be delivered up. But I am the one who shall die. You don't go for martyrdom. You just focus on being as me. Now, the rabbis had their disciples, but they never, it seems, used the metaphor of family. Family was sacrosanct in in first century Judaism. Family was family. And yes, you could be the disciples at the feet of a rabbi, and they use various metaphors for that, but not of family. And yet the Lord talks about... uh, his followers as being his very own family, and he has a lot to say about this. How much more then, he says, shall they not persecute uh, them of his household? Now, at first blush, that seems fairly hard to understand, because surely the Lord Jesus suffered far more than us. So how can it be that the household, that's us, the family, are persecuted much more, much more than Jesus. Surely he suffered more than any of us. That is true. And yet he says here that we as the family shall suffer much more than him. And I think that that works out in that he's saying that the sum total of all the sufferings of all of you who shall be part of my family the sum total of all that suffering is much more than anything I have suffered or will suffer personally. And I think there you see the the absolute loveliness of the Lord Jesus, his generosity of spirit, knowing that he suffered far more and would suffer far more than any of us to the death of the cross. And yet he says, you, my family, are going to suffer much more. And It just shows how sensitive he is to the suffering of every single one of us, insofar as that suffering is part of his suffering. You see there his his absolute loveliness, his grace, his uh, absolute sensitivity to the suffering of us. We who, as individuals, suffer just a fraction of what he did and throw down the cross and run away from it so, so tragically and so often. And yet he says that between you, as a group of people over time and over space, you will suffer much more than me. And I I find that really surpassingly lovely about his whole attitude. Well, he says, fear them not, therefore. You're going to have all this persecution, but don't fear it. Why? Because there's nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. And he goes on clearly to talk about judgment to come. So then this shows in practical terms, the the meaning of, the significance of a future judgment. He's saying, because there is going to be definitely a future judgment, when all action against my people is going to be judged, fear not whatever you're going to suffer. Don't fear. Preach the gospel. Don't be frightened of what other people think, or even if they beat you up or whatever, because, look, there's judgment to come. So the doctrine, the reality of judgment to come is such that this has a huge practical import to us. And why don't you and I preach the gospel as we should? Because we fear those funny looks from people that they might think we're a bit weird. Or we might possibly, possibly lose promotion at work. Or we might possibly have some problem with the neighbours or whatever. And, yeah, this is nothing compared to what the Lord suffered. And the Lord is saying, fear not any of that, because the judgment is going to come. And he, he says there, 
there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed. And that word nothing, the Greek word translated nothing, could just as well be translated nobody. Because there's nobody who's covered up who shall not be revealed. And straight away, when you read there about being covered, you think of the Lord's warning about not covering our lamp. It's the same word in Luke's record of that uh, teaching in Luke 8.16. And of course his point was, you are a candle, you are a lamp, an oil lamp or whatever, you want to look at it, some sort of naked flame that I have, I have lit. But if you cover it so that what well, people wouldn't know that I'm a believer, that, that you're a believer, it goes out. So actually you have to be up front and open about your, your commitment to Jesus. You've got to let that light, that flame burn in the sight, openly in the sight of others, because if you cover it, it's going to go out. And so the Lord is saying here, look, nobody who's covered up is going, is not going to be revealed. And this language of being revealed is very much the language of judgment to come. Same word in 1 Corinthians 3.13, where we're told that the Lord, when he comes, will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and the bring to light is the same word, reveal. He will reveal the hidden things of darkness. Now, the point is that if we're open now, both to ourselves, to our God, to our Lord, and in the eyes of the world, this process won't need to happen, because who we are is who we will be. And there will be, in this life, uh, an absolute congruence between who we internally feel ourselves to be as believers, etc., and who we publicly show ourselves to be. So there's no need for any uh, revelation at the last day. And the same word, that, that's uh, the same Greek word used here for revealed, you find again in Luke 2.35, where Simeon says that a sword would pierce the, the side of Jesus, uh, that the thoughts of many hearts might be revealed. So actually, in the context of the breaking of bread and self-examination there, when we are in the presence of the Lord Jesus, the crucified Lord Jesus, this elicits self-examination, this elicits revelation and declaration of ourselves to ourselves. And I think that is also how the Lord, as it were, sees us in the same way as back in the Old Testament type, uh, Joseph had a cup through which he could divine, through which he could perceive. And I think that that uh, looks forward to, to the Lord's cup in the breaking of bread, in, in the sense that what we think about as we look at him there crucified, this reveals who we really are to him. If frankly it means nothing, if there is a colossal emptiness in us, a lack of any emotion, a lack of any feeling towards him, this is what is shown. And it's also shown to ourselves. The Father right now sees in secret, and that's the same word uh, as is said here about that which is hid. Um, verse 26, there's nothing hid that shall not be known. No, because the Lord again is building on his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, using the same word that's translated here, hid, just there it's translated secret. Um, the reference is Matthew 6, verses 4, 6, and 18, if you want the references. The Lord is saying that he, that God sees those hidden things, that what you think is hidden, because you acted in a smart way in the eyes of your co-workers, your family, your neighbors, etc., that actually the Lord sees that. Mm. The light of the gospel, he says, shouldn't be placed, same word, Luke 11:33, in a hidden place. It's got to be out there, open, before men. And as I say, otherwise, if we hide that light, that naked flame, be it an oil lamp, be it a candle, it's going to go out. So Christianity is, is designed to be lived openly, and if it is not then the whole thing falls apart, and we lose our own light. Now, that is not to say that preaching in the formal sense of evangelism, uh, you know, knocking on doors and, and so forth, uh, 
that that is the be-all and end-all. No, I'm not saying that. I'm talking about personal witness, of course. I'm talking about not hiding who you are, the principles you stand for. And that's increasingly difficult, even in the Western world uh, today. It's increasingly difficult with so many uh, totally ungodly ideas becoming accepted to the point of dogma, born gay and all all this kind of nonsense, uh, that is accepted now on the level of dogma. And woe to you if you disagree. Woe to you if you say, no, well, I don't accept that. I take a biblical perspective, and so on and so forth. But more especially, I think, in our personal lives, in our personal witness of who we are. No, sorry, I'm not doing that. I'm not laughing at that joke. I'm not going there, etc. So he says, what I tell you, verse 27, what I tell you in darkness that you should speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, that you should preach upon the housetops. Now, who preached upon the housetops in the first century? Remember, these words are being heard by first century people. Well, it was the rabbis and the Jewish religious leaders who, especially on the days of the feasts, went up onto the housetops and blew the trumpets to announce the uh, the feasts or, or the beginning of synagogue service, to make announcements, etc., And the Lord is saying, that's you. You are to be the preachers upon the housetops. So again, you see the Lord is saying to these secular people, these nothing special fishermen and just ordinary guys, he's saying, you are to be the new leadership in this new Israel that I'm creating. And so that is what is exactly so difficult for us, that we think, but I'm just an ordinary guy. I'm just a... A road sweeper, I'm just a a computer programmer, I'm just an accountant, I'm just a whatever. I'm not a religious leader, I'm not a specialist. I didn't uh, study theology at university or biblical studies or whatever. And the Lord is saying, yes, right, that's your qualification. I have people like you to do my work. All the time, in the language the Lord is using, he is trying to get the disciples away from the idea that all this is to be done just by religious specialists. He's saying you're all the specialists. And later on, uh, Peter makes the point that we are a nation of priests, just as Israel were intended to be. So what I tell you in darkness, that is what you are to preach. Incidentally, I think you see there an indication that the content of our preaching, as in the preaching of the gospel, is to be the words of Jesus. And that's why when you read the gospel records, you are reading the record of the gospel that was preached by Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. That the gospel is there in the gospel records. The rest is interpretation. The rest is theology. True and inspired as it certainly is. He says, when I tell you in darkness... And yet he also said in John 18, verse 20, in secret, it's the same word translated here, uh, hidden, in verse 26, in secret, in hiddenness, have I said nothing. So what does he mean then when he says, I've told you this on the quiet, I've told you this in darkness? I think he's adopting the perspective of his hearers. Where from their point of view, yes, that's how it seemed. But well, I learnt this just in the quietness of sitting there uh, in a in a back street hall in a, a church in a back street uh, in some suburb of whatever it is, South London or whatever we grew up in. Um, or I learnt this in the quietness of my own room, looking at uh, a PDF file on my on my laptop on my mobile device. I learnt this by looking at movies on YouTube. He's saying, yes, in a sense, I told you this in what you would consider to be the hidden place. But you know what? Nothing is hid. Now go out and share that with others. Don't leave it hidden. He says, uh, verse 27, What I told you in the darkness, you are to speak in the light. In Luke 12, verse 3, it's put from a different point of view. Therefore, whatever you have said in the darkness shall be heard in the light. And what you have, what you have whispered behind closed doors shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. So, here, 
we're told that what we say in the darkness is going to be revealed in the light of the day of judgment. But the Lord Jesus says here, what I tell you, uh, sorry, yeah, what I tell you in darkness is going to be revealed in the light. So I think what he's saying is that we are to preach on the housetops what the Lord has told us in the ear. And nothing will be secret in the day of, of judgment. Our words and his words to us will then be known. That then we will know in a sense, everything there is to know about each other. We'll realize that, hey, the Lord revealed to her that she should do such and such, and she didn't do it, or and she did it. Then it will all be absolutely open. Now, in John's more figurative gospel, he uses darkness for the, the darkness of the Jewish world and light for the light of Christ. So you could uh, read that in here as well, that um, the Lord was speaking to them in darkness in the sense that the Jewish world was, was darkness, and he was the light, and he's saying, now you are to speak that in the light, in the, uh, in the new uh, Christian era. Now he says that what you hear in the ear, you are to teach. That means that any learning of the gospel is him speaking in our ear. It's very, very personal. And so, let's say that uh, a whole bunch of people are reading a book about the Gospel. Do I say it could be Bible Basics or, or whatever. But they're all reading the same text. Or it could be reading the Bible. Reading a chapter from the Bible. And let's say there's, there's ten people sitting there reading it. The Lord is speaking in the ear, that is, whispering... That's very personal to each person. It's not a, a standard uh, set of uh, beliefs that we all tick the same boxes and we're all therefore on the same, same page. I mean, it is in a sense in that the theology that we all agree with uh, could be identical. But the Lord is revealing himself personally. And that personal revelation in the ear, whispered in the ear to each of us, is... By, by nature, by definition, uh, very personal. He may whisper slightly different things to different people. Now, I'm not talking about different doctrine, different theology. I'm talking about how he reveals himself as a person, slightly differently to each of us. And he says, what you hear in the ear, that you are to preach uh, on the housetops. Now, there's a strong similarity here with an Old Testament incident. It's in 1 Samuel 9, uh, verses 15 and 25, where God told Samuel in his ear what is called later on the word of the kingdom about Saul. And what does Samuel do with that word that is spoken, and, and the, the phrase is the same, in his ear? What does he do? He takes Saul up onto the housetop and tells him the message, what is called the word of the kingdom, later on. Now what does that mean? Well, for one thing, it, it, it's encouraging the disciples to see themselves as Samuel, one of the greatest of the prophets, uh, and uh, the judge of Israel, the last judge of Israel. Again, the Lord is, by way of illusion, trying to get the disciples to see that you are not just ordinary people, that you're not just the the mass, the uh, massa uh, of, uh, of just uh, meaningless uh, just uh, people, uh, persons who are just in a mass that are going to be guided by someone else. You each have personal responsibility, no less than the prophets. Just as they were persecuted, so you're going to be persecuted, every one of you. And the other point, I think, is he's saying, look, there may be people who you consider to be absolutely not worth preaching to. Just like Samuel must have, from a human point of view, taken one look at Saul and thought, look, I've been going around Israel all these years holding uh, Bible teaching sessions and you never even showed up once. And I've never even seen your face. You remember how uh, 
Saul in the story, he, he really didn't know who Samuel was. He didn't even know there was a feast that day. He like rocks up in his town and says to some, some chicks he meets by the well kind of thing, hey, like, uh, is, uh, is Samuel around? And they're like, well, don't you know? Of course he is. There's like a feast. Don't you know? There's a feast of the Lord today. He's like, no. Um, and he, he doesn't know Samuel by face. And he even seems to think, oh, he's a man of God. Don't you like have to give them some money to, like, so they tell your fortune? Like, he, the guy totally didn't get it. And when Samuel met Saul, he must have thought, like, Lummy, is, is this the, this can't be the guy. And yet he, he knows that it must be, so he takes him up onto the housetop and tells him the word that the Lord had put in his ear the day before. And again, the Lord knew what he was doing by making this illusion because there was going to be another guy called Saul who also would seem the most unlikely character who was going to become Paul and the greatest probably after the Lord Jesus of all those that, uh, that have uh, followed the Lord anyway. So then, don't give up on people. I think that's what the Lord is saying. And don't think that anyone is not just not cut out for the gospel. There is, as has been observed, a, uh, a hole in our heart that is the, the shape of Jesus, that he fits, is the piece of the jigsaw that fits perfectly. So then, he's, so he says again, verse 28, fear not. He's really making a big thing of this, that um, you must preach and do not fear because judgment day is coming. Not only because all those that persecute you are going to be judged, but I think he also has the idea that to some extent your witness to others is going to be a factor in the day of judgment. So therefore, don't fear, just get on there and witness. And I emphasize again that part and parcel of signing up to Jesus is signing up to the fact that persecution is inevitable. Now, if we were to accept that more strongly than I think many of us do, then it would not at all be strange for us to uh, turn a conversation around to speak about God and spiritual things, knowing that people are going to laugh at you because, well, yeah, that's, that's, what, I ex- that's what I expected. Um, that's what I signed up to. Wow, I'm surprised I'm not being murdered. If we were to make a solemn declaration at the point of our baptism that I know persecution is coming, I know I may very well uh, die a violent death, and Lord, I'm ready to try to do that, here I am, take me. Sure, if I get people looking at me a bit funny when I, I start talking about the Lord, etc., sure, absolutely. You see, if we had that attitude, then certainly our witness would be far stronger. And my concern is that we can be schooled into Christ. My concern is that it is actually a joining of a social club that many grew up in rather than this radical conversion to someone who says, look, don't, don't bother, don't come after me, unless you're prepared to pick up a cross and follow me. That's what he goes on later in this chapter, in this very same context, to say that to preach him and to be in him is the taking up of the cross, because he, he talks about this, picking up the cross, um, uh, in 38, uh, and losing your life in 39, he, he, he talks about that directly in this context. And again, I, I sound a caveat that preaching work, missionary work especially, the idea of getting on a plane and flying out to some exotic country, this is not fun. No. That the real witness, the real work, is a picking up of the cross. And if it's fun and all part an extension of your social club, I honestly think that you, you shouldn't go. You, you, you've not got the right attitude. Now, he, he says here that don't fear because uh, all these people can do, verse 28, is kill the body. They're not able to kill the soul. The problem with the word soul, both in Hebrew and Greek, is that it has a very wide range of meaning. And very often it does mean the body. But it obviously doesn't here. And it can just mean the person. So the Lord is saying there's a difference, in a sense, between who you essentially are and, and the body. 
He says, don't worry about them. All they can do is to kill you. They kill your body. They're not able to kill the soul, but God is able to destroy both soul and body if he condemns you. So I think what that means is that each of us are known by God, that we as persons are known by him, and that when his son returns, and there will be the resurrection of the dead, uh, we will receive this new body, and yet we will also be who we essentially are today. And that, I think, highlights the, the colossal importance which there is uh, to be attached to personality, to character. Because who you are today is, in essence, who you will eternally be. Your soul, not in the sense of some immortal spark or whatever, as is believed by Plato and those who followed him, uh, but the essential you, that God has remembered exactly. That cannot be destroyed by anybody, but in the final destruction of the, of the rejected at the Day of Judgment, their total memory, the memory of them, as the psalm says, shall be forgotten. It shall be cut off. The memory of them. In whose memory? Not in their own memory, because they're dead. They've gone back to dust. They have no memory. The memory of them in whose memory? God's memory. So then, God has this memory of us. We as the sum total of all the days and minutes and hours of human existence and experience. And that is not wasted. And this is the wonderful message of the gospel, that it is of personal salvation. That I personally, you personally, as the sum of all we are as persons, and all that we've been through, and all that we've thought, and reasoned, etc., that we shall be saved, I shall be saved, you shall be saved. That we are not just going to be reappear as robots, that, but that you and me, that Duncan will be saved, that, that you will be saved. This is the great message of personal salvation, which there is in the gospel. And so he says, Don't, what are you worried about losing your body? What are you worried about these guys killing you for? This is a great attitude. If only we can sign up to that and say, yeah, sure. I absolutely am ready to die a violent death. That, of course, uh, my hand might shake at the end. And yes, sure, uh, uh, there'll be the, the natural fear of death that even our Lord had. But in principle, I'm, I'm signed up, I'm ready. Then, fearing that you get funny looks from the neighbours, fearing that you, you get defriended on Facebook. Someone said to me, oh, don't, uh, don't, don't, don't put any links about the gospel on my, my Facebook profile. I might get defriended by, by my son. You think like, well, <laughs> boo-hoo. <laughs> you know, we are supposed to be up front there. If we are believers, if you hide your, your light under the bushel, you, you're going to go out, and that's, that's it. And if we're really signed up to this, that we're ready to die for him, then all such sort of temporary embarrassment then is, is as nothing. He encourages us then that the very hairs of your head, verse 30, are all numbered, numbered by God. Because the community of the believers, Revelation 7 9, is a great multitude that no man can number. This is God saying to Abraham, look at the stars, can you number them? No. Implication is, yeah, I know, you can't, but I can. So then, all the hairs of our head are, are numbered. Fear not, verse 31, fear not, therefore. You are of more value than the natural creation which God consciously cares for. The whole thing is uh, so is not set up on clockwork. All the, the whole process and the water cycle, the birds, etc., this is all exactly, exactly in God's knowledge. And he consciously makes all that happen. So, he keeps on saying, doesn't he, fear not, fear not. Don't fear consequence in preaching the gospel. And that, if you can live by that, this is a way to great freedom. To live without fearing consequence. Without fearing consequence of preaching the gospel. This is, is as I say, a way to, to great personal freedom, psychological freedom. And he says, 32, Whoever will confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father which is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, him will I also deny. 
Again, as I said earlier, there is this definite link between our witness to him now, before people, and our final acceptance at, at the Day of Judgment. There's no question that, that that connection is made clearly. And don't forget that one thing that all the Gospels emphasize, very much so in terms of numbers of verses, is Peter's denial of Jesus. And of course the point is that you can deny him before men, but you can repent of it. So I think what he's saying is, um, if you deny uh, him in the sense of covering your light as a way of life, it's not talking about momentary failures, because Peter obviously failed in that way. And so he, he says, look, <clears throat> there is going to be, verse 35, uh, huge family tensions over me. And again, this is something we have to sign up to. Just like you have to sign up to when you're baptized, that, uh, or later on when, when you realize it, that yes, I fully expect a violent death, I fully expect to have to give up this life, uh, this body, uh, because of him, and because of my witness for him, yes, that's part of it, that's, you know, I signed up to carrying a cross, yep, I, I'm, I'm, I'm good for that, um, and I'm not, you know, you don't say that confidently, but yes, um, with, with a lot of, you know, my hand shaken as, a, as I sign the agreement sort of thing, um, yes, but I will sign, and yes, to the best of my ability, I shall do this. Um, the other thing <clears throat> that you see very clearly throughout the teaching of Jesus is that there's going to be family tensions over following him. And remember that the family was sacrosanct in first century Judaism. In the world in which we live, family breakup is on every hand, and particularly here in, in Europe, family is almost losing its, its meaning. We're just a bunch of uh, individuals wandering around doing our thing until we die. Uh, very few good examples of family life, unfortunately. Now, <clears throat> the Lord is saying that, look, family breakup, the loss of that which is most considered by you as most sacrosanct is going to happen. And again, all I can say is that if you don't experience that, if you think you've flown under the radar because your parents are believers, your siblings are believers, you all ended up living happily ever after, uh, and your, uh, your, your partner was a believer, and your kids are believers, and so on and so forth, uh, you're very lucky. You're very lucky. And possibly, possibly, you actually haven't stood up for the principles of Jesus as you might have done, because... The Lord is quite clear here that there is going to be family breakup. And actually, looking at it, I know very few families who have not been touched uh, by this. He says, I did not come to send peace, verse 34. I did not come to send peace on earth. And yet he seems to be alluding there to the words of the angels. Uh, Luke 2:14, peace on earth. That there would be peace on earth through Christ. The Lord's point, I think, is I didn't come now to send peace on earth. The peace on earth is in my kingdom. But to get there is going to be a huge struggle. And you will pay for it, as it were, uh, with the blood, with your own blood and the blood of your family and, and the loss of human relationships. This is how it goes. And uh, so much reasoning that I come across in established churches, ecclesias, etc., is based around we must not break up families. In other words, yeah, well, we've decided to get rid of this one, so we chucked him out of fellowship. Uh, but you see, if we uh, if if we now fellowship with uh, with his family, who say that uh, he should be broken bread with, etc., well, then other families are going to break up. So we draw a line there. Well, no. The point is not whether families are going to break up. The point is, what is the will of God? And what does the Bible say? Where is the Bible case? And time and again, this argument for a closed table uh, is based very much around, not what people personally believe, but because Uncle Johnny thinks this and Uncle Tommy uh, would get real upset and Auntie Susie would write us out of the will if we did this, that or the other, and so on and so forth. There is no interest in following Scripture, in following the will and the Spirit of Christ, without which we are none of His. 
he actually says that he has come, 35, to set a man at variance against his father, the daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Are they just random examples? I don't think so. I think that in each of those cases, the, the, the tension is against someone in the older generation. It's as if what he's saying is that his way is so radical that traditionalists will not want it because he, he goes right against the, uh, the idea of, of uh, secular wisdom that the older a person in a family, the more they are to be respected. He's spoken so much about his household, the new household that he is creating. And that new household that he's creating has eldership predicated on quite different terms. The elders of the ecclesias, as we later read in the later New Testament, uh, were elders not by reason of their age, but by reason of spiritual qualification. So I think he, he is saying that there is very much likely to be tension because people consider that the older, physically older a person is, the more they must be respected. And that was clearly the case in the first century. And the Lord is, is really radical in what he's teaching. There's a radical, I think, in every one of us, even if the years have uh, blunted it somewhat and fear of consequences uh, knocked it off a bit. But, you know, there's a radical buried inside each of us. And we... We want a cause to fight for, and we want something to rise up to. We want a leader uh, to, to elicit that youthful radicalism again. And you know, in these teachings of Jesus, you have that. You have that. You, you have really uh, something absolutely radical that touches at the very heart of how Judaism in the first century perceived family, perceived society, perceived people, everything. And it's no less radical, this is the point, it's no less radical in, in our days. So then he goes on to say uh, about the need for carrying the cross, which I've already touched on, it's in the context of preaching the gospel without fear of consequence. Then he says, 40, he that receives you receives me. And early on in the chapter, as we saw last week, he's been talking about going uh, into people's houses, wishing peace to that house, preaching the gospel. He that receives you receives me. In that work of, <clears throat> of preaching the gospel, no matter what it might cost you, uh, you are him. You are manifesting him to this world. So that he that receives you receives Jesus. And he goes on, he that receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. Again, he is encouraging his disciples, those secular men and women, who were not for the most part religious people. He's saying, you are equivalent to the prophets. He's getting them to, to re-look at the whole of the Old Testament and their whole knowledge of the Bible, and to look at those great worthies of old, and yes, to respect them as the worthies of old, but to realize that I am no less. That I also am called to a mission. That I am no longer a spectator at a show. That I am no longer looking at this from a distance, thinking, wow, yeah, what a wonderful person Elisha was, or Elijah, or whatever, or Moses, Samuel, and the prophets. But that is you. That